Welcome to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. To contact Dr. Danny and learn more about the ministry, visit drdanny.live. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience the good life today. Danny Yamashiro here. Welcome to The Good Life, encouraging you with inspirational stories to share with family and friends through perspectives of hope in Jesus Christ. What do ripe peaches, well-painted homes, interesting history lectures, challenging exams, thoughtful Sunday school lessons, contented grandchildren, and happy neighbors tell us about God and immigration? This is the story of Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover, who lives out a legacy one that continues to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We pause here to remind you the reason we have the Good Life program is to share how the love of Jesus makes a difference in the lives of people. I'm talking about Jesus' love so strong, so strong, dear friend, that He died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was buried and rose again on the third day, offering God's hope. Hope Ruth Melconian Hoover knows very well, and it's our prayer that you too would grow in that hope and know that hope yourself. Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover is a professor in the political science department at Gordon College. She graduated from Biola University before earning her master's and PhD from Emory University with Lyman Kelstedt. She co-authored Evangelicals and Immigration, Fault Lines Among the Faithful. Ruth, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley of California in the town of Modesto. Uh, let's see, best known for maybe American Graffiti and George Lucas. American Graffiti, George Lucas, for sure. And Billy Graham's Modesto Manifesto. Ah, yes. So uh, what was it like, Ruth, growing up there in Modesto? So um, it was a small town then, and it grew over the course of my childhood from about 30,000 to 150,000. It was a nice place to raise a family. My parents had been missionaries. Uh, They are uh, from other countries. My father, uh, Armenian from Cyprus. My mother, um, from Denmark. They met on the mission field in India. And um, after some time, they'd been encouraged to settle and serve in California. So uh, it, it was good to join a place where there were a lot of other sojourners <laughs> and people coming from many different places. I mean, California, the Southwest, heavily Hispanic, lovely agricultural area. Um, and so I had neighbors from all over the world, even in that small agricultural town. And so I appreciated that growing up. So we didn't kind of feel like the only ones who had this uh, mixed experience. A kind of agricultural melting pot, (laughs) so to speak. Among friends, family members, relatives, who would you say influenced you most Hmm. in your growing up years? So my mom was a very strong figure, particularly growing up. In retrospect, my dad is also a very strong figure. But my mother, um, I mean, both faithful uh, folks who love the Lord, 
serve the God, serve God in in whatever context, right? So in the countries in which they served, and um, in our small town, and then moving from there to the city of San Francisco, serving there wherever they were. I mean, that kind of bloom where you're planted. They did so. And How long were they mini- missionaries in India? Uh, good question. So, and they both came there independently in the mid fifties. Um, and then left in the mid sixties and then were serving in Lebanon and then, um, ended up in, uh, California. And I was born in, um, they made a pit stop on the way in Colorado where I was born. Yeah. Where were you, Ruth, in the birth order? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm the last of six. So I came in the womb. Everybody else was born overseas. Um, and so, yes, of course, the running joke was that I was the only person who could be president in our family. So, but I don't have those aspirations (laughs) in spite of being a political scientist. (laughs) Right. Someone might ask, someone might be wondering, what was it like being the youngest Hmm. in the family? So, uh, so, my sister is the oldest, and then there are four boys in between, and then I'm the youngest, so kind of female bookends, right? Uh, but we were also uh, born very close in age. My mother gave birth to six children within nine years, so uh, I always I always argued that I wasn't spoiled, but um, maybe my brothers would differ. Uh, so I would say it also, my mother noted that Um, Coming after four boys certainly made me a tougher young girl who could hold her own. So, But it was great to grow up in a big family. I mean, my husband and I, uh, we have two children and we love it. But growing up in a family of six was definitely a bit more chaotic, but controlled chaos. Yeah. Well, growing up in, in, in that kind of familial, both challenges, the chaos, also the, the, the fruitfulness of growing up in that environment. Your journey of faith, missionary families, some may assume certain things, mm. but how did Ruth Melconian become a Christ follower in that environment? Yeah. Um, well, we were definitely faithful churchgoers, very involved in a Reformed Presbyterian church in which I grew up. Um, and that was important. It was important what we did within our household uh, in terms of how we read and studied and grew together, but certainly um, uh, growing up in a Reformed household, Reformed Presbyterian household also meant we were baptized as infants, right, not as adults, so, um, and we didn't go through, my mother came from a Lutheran background, we didn't go through a period um, kind of making a confession or confirmation as teens, but we did go through uh, in our church what was called a catechism um, experience uh, in terms of understanding kind of the basics of our faith and committing to that. Um, so I feel like my faith grew in stages and I, I, there were times when I worried about my salvation and I think there were many, too many times where I laid in bed and asked Jesus to be my savior, right? Just to make sure. Um, but I think I came to recognize this is a, this is a kind of slow process of discipleship and growth and it's not a one-time deal, right? In terms of accepting Jesus, it's kind of really pouring into it and living it and growing and college was really important. Um, as well. I went to Biola University, as you said, um, and it was important because it was a time at which it really became my own, studying on my own, maybe having more theological disagreements with my parents, but being very true to the faith and a committed follower of Christ um, and seeing kind of the room for disagreement in the minors, right? Um, And mom and dad allowed those conversations to go Oh, for sure, for sure. I think having a, um, I don't know, I mean, 
interdenominational differences in our family, having a Lutheran mother and a Presbyterian uh, father and a father whose family came out of, you know, um, previously Armenian Orthodoxy. And then um, so and, and they were also a different political party. So we had theological and political discussions and there was room for disagreement. Um, but we were kind of loyal to one another in that. Wow. The, the birthing of the political science <laughs> professor from Gordon College. What tension what health hmm. in the dialogue? Yes, in the, indeed. In the conversation, the, 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 those are the kind of discourses we, we may need more of Amen. in this day. How did you sense, Ruth, a calling to academia? Hmm. So how, that, did, how did that yeah, take form? No, that's a good question. That took some time to build, and I, and I think that's fine. I mean, I think just many things unfold in our lives, and, and my you know, attempts at five, 10-year plans tend to fall flat. So it's been good for me to see and let things kind of mature and ripen. And so I I did love being a student, um, but I also, I wasn't sure if God wanted me to kind of engage in a world of public justice in a more applied way, if I needed to study and analyze, if law school was the route, what it ought to be. And so for me, it was really good to have the experience of um the undergraduate experience, but then to take a break and work for some time. And I did end up working for, I should say, I studied for a semester in Washington, D.C. and a semester in Central America, both uh, through programs, one the American Studies program and one the Latin American Studies program of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. CCCU. CCCU. Um, and they ended up hiring me to work for them in Washington, D.C. And that was a great opportunity and a time for me to to work and to see kind of what Christian higher ed um, really could do, different disciplines that were of interest, um, where and how I could grow, whether that would be as an administrator or a faculty member um, or something entirely different. But for me, having that break um, from my undergraduate studies uh, was a great time for me to see and engage with mentors, to see other models to read on my own and mm-hmm. to choose and to kind of pour myself in um, in other areas uh, that I might not have done if I had just stayed. Uh, and and in that process, I it, it came. I think the kind of the seed kind of came to ripen, and just in terms of what what I ought to do and my my love for politics and political science and my un- to understand it and, and world politics in particular kind of won out as an area of study. But even then, when I chose to enter the academy, I wasn't absolutely certain or when I chose to enter graduate school, what the outcome would be. And I really wanted to be open. Does God want me to go from here into, again, public service or working for a polling organization or at, to be a college administrator? But so it it really kind of kept um, unfolding year by year. Uh, and so as I studied political science and as I studied world politics, I came to really enjoy it and get very excited about the opportunity to um, continue to do research in that, but to teach and invest in students in just the same way I had been mentored and invested in by so many great faculty members. Teaching, investing, being invested in, Hmm. and sharing, it's part of what she does, a good part of the heart of what Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover does as professor in the political science department at Gordon College. You can find out more about her and Gordon College at gordon.edu. When we come back, we'll talk about 
faith shaping perceptions. What's her perception of how that has taken place in her own life? Dr. Ruth Malconian Hoover, she's published in Social Science Quarterly, The Review of Faith and International Affairs, Latin American Perspectives, and Political Research Quarterly. Find out more again at gordon.edu. Stay with us. We'll be back with more. You don't want to miss this. Wandering the road of desperate life Famously beneath the barren sky Leave it to me James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is brought to you by generous sponsors. Thank you to Coach Dino Babers and Mrs. Susan Babers, Mr. Edmund Jung and Mrs. May Jung, Mr. Rodney Arias Sr., A1A Electrician, Cedar Assembly of God, and the Thursday Men's Breakfast, Boston. If you, your business, or your church would like to support The Good Life with Dr. Danny, please visit drdanny.live. Join our partnership team. That's drdanny.live. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience the good life today. Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover has also published Welcoming the Stranger in Cosmologics and a Theology of Immigrant Labor in Common. If you're tuning in right now, maybe caught the tail end of the last segment, you can get this program in its entirety. Just go to drdanny.live, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, major platforms. It's available for you there. Share it with a family member or friend. Find out more about uh, Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover at gordon.edu. Ruth, in what ways have your faith shaped your perceptions? Well, I sure hope it does, right? I hope that uh, my faith and my my love of God kind of shapes my, um, definitely shapes my worldview in terms of how I see how maybe how things ought to be, right? Uh, how they are not, how they could be redeemed, um, how I can best serve and maybe uh, enter into the conversation to move things along in that direction, right? I know I don't want to fall prey to kind of constantly using language that's of Christianese, but I I do see us as having being co-laborers with Christ, right? And having this opportunity to be kingdom agents as well. And I am not without hope when I see even a world that is so divided with much suffering and many pressing concerns because of the hope of Christ, right? That we and the call that we have been given to kind of persevere, to be faithful, even if many of the things that we hope will be redeemed and will be restored and reconciled will not happen in our lifetime, right? In our lifetime, so. So there's a, there's a 
there's a breath there in in view beyond one's lifetime. So we're living. We've got to be living for more than just ourselves if we mm. see it that way. Your book, along with Lyman Kelstad, Evangelicals and Immigration, Fault Lines Among the Faithful, in what ways is evangelicalism as a religious movement clearly multiracial, multi-ethnic as a phenomenon? Well, uh, it's a good question because I think these days when folks in the United States hear the word evangelical, they may just think of a politicized group of uh, white evangelicals in particular, right? And I think uh, you and I know kind of it has this has theological basis and an understanding of who people are, what they're committed to in terms of their faith, um, core beliefs. But I think the term is in trouble these days, isn't it? Right? Uh, so on the other hand, when as a social scientist, I still continue to use the term, even if folks may be troubled by its many meanings and implications, because it is still a helpful tool in understanding um, who people are, where they may be coming from, their particular experiences, and how that might shape how they think and how they act, right? But we have to break that down, don't we, right? Because it's not just about, as uh, Bud Kelstadt is often, and he and his, his colleagues in the Gang of Four who have done all this great work in religion and politics say, you can't just look at the label. Um, you have to look at belief, behavior, belonging, right? So what, what denominations are folks affiliated with? What do they actually um, believe, right? How do they practice that faith? And these days, uh, I think increasingly you have folks who may be evangelical but are uh, maybe discouraged by how the term um, has been maybe maligned or misunderstood or is used in the press and so shy away from it, even if they belong to affiliations that are evangelical and might be part of, say, the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, and and on the other hand, you have folks who don't even go to church, right, and who may not ad- adhere to kind of primary beliefs of evangelical or conservative, theologically conservative Christianity that would call themselves evangelical because they see it as a kind of a, a shorthand for where they stand politically. Hmm. So let's go, go a little further here on that. How do evangelical whites, blacks, Latinos, and Asians, how do they differ mm. on the political spectrum? <laughs> so um, evangelical whites uh, tend to be uh, not just conservative theologically, but conservative politically and more closely aligned with the Republican Party. Evangelical African-Americans tend to be more decidedly affiliated with the Democratic Party. Um, Latinos are some... Uh, uh, more democratic, but there are clearly um, strong uh, proportions of that population that are also more decidedly Republican or independent as well. 
Um, Asians, it may depend on the on the particular Asian group, but also veer more Democratic than Republican, particularly in comparison to white evangelicals. So this is based on your data, your research. So would we say the white evangelicals generally would be more on the right? For sure. And the blacks, Hispan- uh, Latinos, and Asians more s- center Center. Maybe edging left of center in some ways. Sure, and and of course there's variation within, and and it also sure. for many say more recent immigrants from um, different countries, it may depend on the country of origin. So Latinos coming from Venezuela or Cuba who may have real um, animus against uh, experiences, may have animus against experiences with Marxism may be further to the right right than um, necessarily Latinos who are um, Puerto Rican, who are already citizens here, of course, or um, Latinos coming from Mexico. If that helps. Very helpful. So let, let's take, take that and consider how our attitudes mm. on immigration policies say deportation status and so on how how are they highly interconnected as you and uh, dr kelstead have 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 put forward yeah so we found and then there's other research that's been going on that's uh, very strong by janelle wong and others who where you can see kind of a strong um divide on by evangelicals um uh, evangelical whites or evangelical blacks, uh, uh, Latinos, and um, Asians on immigration. Evangelical whites tend to be consistently the most conservative on that question and the most concerned about immigration levels and more desirous of stronger security measures um, versus evangelicals of color. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that's because of their faith perspectives across the board. I mean, uh, in our research, that has been a consideration and a concern. How much is faith actually driving that opinion? How much is one's political party affiliation or one's ideology driving that opinion? How much is um, one's ethnicity or race driving that opinion? One of the things I appreciated, one of the numerous things I appreciated was the, the in-depth treatment you gave to the history mm. of the subject from the beginning of our of our nation and tracing the movements the, the the key turning points what are the three fault lines that well, you and Dr. Gelstad thank you have observed yeah so i so one of those fault lines we we discussed with in terms of fault lines along race and ethnicity but there's also i mean kind of fault lines and differences over time Right. And fault lines as well uh, in terms of these days, evangelical leadership versus evangelical laity or people in the pews. Right. Versus people in the pulpits. Um, So uh, over time, evangelicals have had a really complicated history in terms of how they have viewed immigration and how they viewed the immigrant. Sometimes they have been um, 
concerned. I mean, sometimes they themselves, of course, have been evangelicals, have been immigrants. I shouldn't presume that it's always evangelicals who are on the side receiving in the U.S. Um, But those who have already been here who are citizens in terms of how they view newcomers, um, sometimes it has been uh, with greater welcome. Uh, Sometimes when when you think of uh, considerable European waves of immigration that occurred in the 1800s, early 1900s and so on with changes in transportation and push factors from Europe and so on. Um, There was some welcome, but also concern as the numbers grew significantly and quickly. There were folks who worried about capacity for integration, folks who were very concerned about what they saw as a Catholic invasion, right? And so some of them joined, say, the Know Nothing Party um, and other movements to push back against what they feared would change the very nature of what it meant to be American. So, um, but there were others who responded differently, um, some with greater welcome and said, how can we uh, support newcomers with settlement houses? How can we help them acclimate and integrate um, and become more fully American? Now, some of those projects were helpful. Some of those projects were very paternalistic or indoctrinating, but um, there was a whole range of responses. And we see this with um, throughout the periods of American history where some offer welcome, some rejection, um, and the, the response has not been uniform for sure. In the, the, the fact that you, you say it has not been uniform, you also talked about the elite, mm-hmm. the evangelical elite and the evangel- evangelical laity as a fault line. Mm-hmm. Let, let's come back to that. Yeah. There's, there's something that's a bit puzzling to me be, because of that, because uh, one, one assumption would be that there would be harmony mm-hmm. among the leaders and the laity, but clearly based on the, the research, the data does not show so let's let's talk a little bit more about this. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover. She's a she's a professor of the political science at in the political science department at Gordon College. You can find out more about her at gordon.edu. More about this. It's like we're just scratching the surface. We're trying to do it with some level of purpose with some level of intentionality. You know, we can't get get it all at once, but uh, perhaps as we spoke earlier, we move forward in the dialogue a little bit and hopefully enrich you and your conversations, as I certainly am being enriched by talking with uh, Dr. Ruth McConian Hoover. More when we come back. When we come back from our break, more with uh, Dr. Ruth McConian Hoover. Consider... What are biblical, moral, historical rationales for balanced immigration reform? And uh, what makes them persuasive to evangelicals? Later on, maybe we can talk about presidents and uh, each president uh, having an impact in one way or another. Stay with us. We'll be back with more. Wandering the road of desperate life Famously beneath the barren sky on behalf of Danny Yamashiro Ministries, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, weekdays at 6 p.m. on WEZE, and visiting drdanny.live for more resources. 
my dear friend, it is because of listeners and donors like you that we are able to spread the message of Jesus' love and bring hope to people like you, your family, and friends. Proverbs 11.25 says, He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Will you prayerfully consider donating to Danny Yamashiro Ministries so that we may continue to broadcast the gospel so believers will be built up and non-believers may form a relationship with Jesus Christ? Visit drdanny.live to make a financial contribution today. That's drdanny.live. And thank you again for supporting The Good Life with Dr. Danny. May God richly bless you with The Good Life. Listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience the good life today. Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover's scholarly interests include Latin America, immigration, women and politics, and religion and international affairs. She's the co-author with Lyman Kelstead of Evangelicals and Immigration, Fault Lines Among the Faithful. You can find out more about her at gordon.edu. Ruth, what are biblical, moral, historical rationales for, for balanced immigration reform in terms of being persuasive to evangelicals? That's a great question. I think... I think that conservative Christians, and by conservative, I, d- I don't just mean, I mean, don't mean necessarily politically, um, but theologically conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, have a lot to bring to the table here in that they really care about and ought to care about all of Scripture and all that we are told and commanded to do. And I do think. Um, Sometimes you, it, there is a sense that there are some that read scripture and come away and say, rule of law, that is it. That is the, <laughs> that is the key paradigm that we need to pull out uh, from scripture as to how we ought to uh, understand immigration and the enforcement of the rule of law. If somebody breaks the law, that's all there is to it. And there's just one understanding of the law. There's one understanding of what it is to break the law. And there seems to be no recourse for addressing that. Um, there are others who would say, we ought to welcome the stranger. So for them, that might mean, should we really ought to have borders? Do states, do nation states have the right, uh, the sovereign right to, to police or govern their borders at all? What does that mean? Are we getting too fixated on um, national understandings and loyalties and citizenship? So I would say as Christians, why are we not considering that we are called to welcome the stranger. And yes, I think there is also an understanding that the law matters and the rule of law matters. It feels to me that we are also called to do justice and love mercy. And what does that mean in the scope of immigration law? I'm not a legal expert by any means, but I look at immigration uh, as someone who comes from an immigrant family who cares about these questions and who cares about our country, who cares about a united country, um, and who cares about serving those who are here and those who would like to come here, right? What does that mean? What does it mean to do justice to those here, those already here? And so for me as a Christian, um, I when I first came to this, I just presumed everybody thought the same way I did about these questions. And I've come to see a much wider array 
of perspectives, of Christian perspectives on the issue for sure. And I understand where many people are coming from. I would urge a consideration that pulls all these primary and very important teachings and calls, right, to who we are and what we are to be. You know, there was a movement um, pushed by uh, and encouraged by some within a World Relief called uh, G92, GER92. You, you know scripture better than I do. But, right, the, the referencing to the stranger and the foreigner in our midst and our call to care for, for the stranger and the foreigner, it is clearly very important to God and God's heart. And we need to consider that when we consider immigration policy. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that care for the stranger, again, means we have no borders and that there's not a just and orderly and humane way to do this. I think there are obviously in Romans and elsewhere, there's descriptions of government that clearly serves its people by having orderly, decent government in place, right? So um, so for me, I am certainly more supportive of an immigration reform that brings in these multiple concerns and considerations. I think the evangelical immigration table, for instance, which has been signed by so many key Christian leaders and evangelical denominations who've kind of recognized there are these major principles that come from our faith that should guide what legislation could look like. Now, that is much easier said than done, and I understand that. (laughs) And I understand what politicians have to weigh in practice. Well, it's the question of who who has a a bigger influence. Mm -hmm. Does the the political agenda have a bigger influence on the church or Mm -hmm. on the evangelicals, or does the the scripture have a, a a bigger influence on that? And you mentioned the the evangelical elite. Speaking of churches, denominations, mm-hmm. organizations, parachurch type organization yes. leaders, yes. and you write about the the fault line mm-hmm. that the the laity are not following or resonating with what the leaders or the elite are are saying. So where is that disconnect mm. actually happening? Can you explain where that margin is of uh, distinction? Well, uh, I do think people in particularly in some places, are experiencing a lot of demographic change in their communities all at once. And for them, I think that process of uh, adjustment um, has created a lot of fear and anxiety, and I think that propels for many of those folks how they think and act. And I think politicians have recognized that fear and anxiety and have very often played on that. Um, and use that uh, to their advantage to garner votes Um, and have not always come up with practical solutions and viable solutions, but solutions that make people in the moment feel uh, satisfied, right? Uh, And the politicians, I think, very often know that these solutions are not necessarily workable or just humane, viable, good solutions, but but they they capture the vote. Um, I I think what's... what's, uh, so, so the parties have become more bifurcated on this issue. Both parties used to have more complicated views of immigration um, because of 
different pressures within each party as to how they might approach it. But these days, there is much more of a divide, um, at least uh, in particularly the rhetoric that's used um, by some of the key leaders in both parties. And that does make it harder to come to the middle and to come to the table and think about uh, where good um, policy solutions, how they could move forward. I do think some of these politicians and in some of the meetings I've been at, the way they've spoken has been much more reasonable. And behind closed doors, I think many folks know that there are good steps that everybody could agree on. There is, at at minimum, some low-hanging fruit they could concur on. But um, at the individual level, I think there are, again, regions and places where there's been a lot of demographic change or so many folks have lost jobs all at once. And whether that's to jobs being outsourced or whether that's to what they perceive as jobs being taken by new migrants or whether that's due to automation, I think sometimes um, politicians and uh, certain journalists uh, uh, convey this in a way that whips up anger, hatred, and kind of scapegoating of the newcomer. And it makes it difficult for to move forward. As, as you share these, these, they can be gripping, gripping beneath the surface mm-hmm. movements about the embrace of immigration being worn out by the growing majority uh, notions to embrace immigration, worn out for a growing majority of evangelical leaders. <clears throat> Again, the that margin or that distinction between the elite and the laity. Mm-hmm. Give us a snapshot, Ruth, of, of the ebb and flow of immigration, the immigration movement, from Bush to Obama to uh, Trump to Biden, yeah. in your perspective. Yeah, um, and I'm happy to speak to this, but I know that you are a presidential expert, so I hope you speak <laughs> into this even more. But um, So Bush is an example of a time, right, where... Um, George W. Bush was behind comprehensive immigration reform. So you had a Republican administration um, and pushing that. Now, I would say some of the evangelical elites uh, took some time themselves getting behind that movement. The National Association of Evangelicals and others in this in this whole evangelical immigration table. Some of that came after his the big push in two thousand six, two thousand seven. That did seem like that might have been a time where we we might have been able to move forward. Quite frankly, if nine eleven hadn't occurred, um, it might have been far easier for us to work more cooperatively on questions of migration and. Um, Bush, when he came into office, was friends with that time with a new Mexican president, Fox, who had also been a governor at the same time as Bush. And they had good communication in terms of ways in which, for instance, not that Mexico is obviously the only sending country, but we do share a 2,100-mile border, so it's not surprising there's a lot of mobility of migrate and migration. There had been good conversations about how could we work more effectively together on these questions, whether that's offering more um, legal channels, temporary, permanent. What might that look like? What might it? How might it serve our whole hemisphere, North America? What could we do better? Um, questions of security and concerns and reasonable anxieties grew post 9/11, and I think that made the conversation more difficult, because even as you had a Republican administration behind this, they were unable to move forward. Obama, um, in his administration, we know, was able 
um, to work on questions of uh, the the dreamers, right? And those who came here, uh, not through their own choice, but their parents came here, may not have had status, but these children sometimes didn't even recognize they didn't have status. So um, creating opportunities for them to garner legal status, to go to college, work, and um, contribute even more effectively in our in our country. That has been something that many folks from both parties historically have been able to get behind, but that was still difficult for Obama to make progress on. So he used executive degrees uh, to push that forward, right, and then work to expand that even more with some considerable pushback. Um, but at the same time that he did so, and this was not his first administration, but in his second administration, he took up migration as a more, uh, with greater focus, his first administration more focused on um, health care and so on. But in that second administration, it does seem that in in his effort perhaps to move us towards comprehensive immigration reform, he decided to show that he could be tough on questions of security, right? And deportations increased um, very significantly at that time to show that if we work on immigration reform, that doesn't mean we're going to have an influx of people at the border because we're going to be serious about border security and orderly um, migration as well. So he had a, a compli- he's had a complicated record on this. Um, and, uh, oh, and then Trump? Trump and Biden. <laughs> Trump and Biden. Um, Trump, well, we know, I think this was one of the key issues that he rode right into office. He kind of used fear around this question. I think as a businessman, he had a very different opinion about immigration, right, and, and, and hiring of immigrants and hiring of immigrants who may not have even had status. But as a politician, I think he saw the fear, the anxiety, the concern around these questions and uh, whipped up um, concern by using language that was intentionally uh, antagonizing, I think, in terms of questions of those who are coming across the border are coming to attack us. They're coming to bring, um, uh, right, he used language that I I don't want to repeat here, right, Uh, in terms of disparaging language that I think helped uh, whip up concern and created um, a sentiment for people who were concerned about where our country was going. You could blame it on newcomers, right? So if we could just constrain that, then America would hold together, we could move forward. And so obviously, made the wall a priority, um, made, uh, wanted to make more deportations a priority, but had uh, more lack of cooperation with states on that question. So it was constrained somewhat on that front. Um, Also, of course, uh, was very famously pushed really hard uh, when there were more folks coming to the border, particularly children coming to the border and families coming to the border, separating families at the border, which lost him some allies on that front for sure. Um, My goodness, he slowed down not just uh, uh, those who were coming at our uh, southern border, um, but those who might want to come as refugees or asylees, right, for political or religious persecution. And um, so really reduce the numbers of those who could come at that time. Um, Biden, uh, and then on DACA, he, he had a more complicated uh, approach to that as well, um, but used, like um, Obama, used a lot of executive decrees uh, to get things done. Biden then came in promising that he would reverse some of these things, so it has stopped the building of the wall. Biden, I should say, like Trump, um, also used another Article uh, 42, public health concerns because of COVID, uh, as a reason to stop um, 
inflow of migration at the border. Now, um, that was overused. It was a pre-existing article, and it also uh, is something that other countries were doing at the same time during uh, the COVID era in particular. Um, so Biden has wanted to uh, move away from that, uh, move back towards uh, DACA, of course, stop the wall. He's increased the number of refugees who can come now. Um, and he's also uh, worked to think about how it is that we can help speed up the process and improve legal channels for migration and deal with a massive backlog that we have of folks who would who are seeking to come um, legally as well. Um, so and that's been a very complicated dilemma. Dr. Ruth Malconian Hoover, I don't know how many people in this world could have just in a snapshot just given us that kind of overview on presidents and immigration. Uh, This is a true honor to have you here with us when we come back in our final segment. Let's talk a bit about relationships with immigrants who are part of our congregations. How do they influence perceptions? And how might a careful examination of the role of members of Congress. This is just sort of a future-looking take on things, Uh, you know, their beliefs and interests. So more with Dr. Ruth Malconi and Hoover. Stay with us. We'll be back. Wandering the road of desperate life, aimlessly beneath the barren sky, leave it to me. This is Danny Yamashiro. Don Pick Benson wrote, When I was growing up, my dad was a farmer, not a Christian. He had little interest in faith, having been told by his father that the Bible was a fairy tale. But then a local pastor took an interest in my dad, asking if he could help plow the fields on the weekend. That one act of service spoke louder than words ever could to my dad. By his actions... The pastor made my dad feel loved, and that did more than any preaching could have. He didn't need convincing about the theological correctness of the Bible. He needed to feel God's love for him. This pastor met that need in a practical way, and that's evangelism. For more inspiration on evangelism, go to drdanny.live. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience The Good Life Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover in A Theology of Immigrant Labor writes, urging the church to continue to respond to the discussion, the discussion of immigrant labor, with views of work and of people based on scripture. Do we see them as God sees them? Her hope is that we can take an honest look at why it is so many are frustrated with the immigrant populations in our nations. Find out more about Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover at gordon.edu. Ruth, how do relationships with immigrants who are part of the congregation, how do they influence our perceptions? 
That's a great question. Uh, so I'm thinking about my own my own my family's experience growing up, right? Coming into that community, I think as folks, there were folks, maybe some local farmers, uh, who may have wondered about my parents and with their um, thick accents and their perspectives. But I think worshiping side by side and serving side by side and seeing the love of God, right, and the love of Jesus Christ that transformed all of them. I think they saw that we were all part of the body of Christ, right? And so uh, I think not just seeing ourselves as um, new citizens or newcomers or <laughs> or folks whose family has been here through the, since the Mayflower, right? Um, that makes a big difference as we sit side by side and recognize kind of who we are and whose we are. And that doesn't mean for my parents that citizenship had no meaning. It was important. It was important to them, and they were thankful to become U.S. citizens as well, right? They appreciated their prior citizenships, and they were they were proud Americans too. Um, but it's clearly not all that defines us. And maybe, and my hope is that's not the first thing we see when we see people that we see them with the eyes of Christ. One of the things I enjoy when reading a work like yours and, and Dr. Kelstad is the for future study, <laughs> for future research. And this is part of that where you, you, you suggest, you know, how might a careful examination of the role of members of Congress and their, their, their beliefs mm. be of interest in this immigration conversation? Your thoughts? Or hopes. Well, that's a big. That is a big study, and I'm hoping somebody else takes that on. <laughs> only because I'm middle aged now, and I only have so much time left. Um, no, I, I am. I am continuing in much of this work, but it, I think it is fascinating uh, for politicians. How much does their faith kind of inspire and shape what they do? And for some people, they would say, "Well, I'm a Christian, and then I do my work over here." But it, at a minimum. Even if they're not drawing from biblical principles, you would think the, that their faith would inspire them to make sure that they are doing justice and loving mercy in their work, right? Um, so uh, I think, like, like many of us, uh, many of our political opinions, we may not be able to trace a biblical route or a Christian route to how we got there, right? But um, it is a curious thing to think about these members of Congress, what their faith is, where they might attend, what they might be hearing within their congregations, what influence, what they might be experiencing within their congregations, how multi-ethnic are their congregations, how much are they sitting side by side and serving with uh, with immigrants, how much are they hearing about immigration, again, in their congregations, do their pastors speak on it, what does that mean, how does that influence them, if at all? Yes, is there a is there a correlation because they are members of Congress, but they would be categorized in the data as laity, mm. wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. So again, that 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 margin or that 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 so called gap in this uh, conversation. How might we pray? Mm. What are areas of prayer, Ruth, that uh, we should pray for? And I'd like to ask you if you would pray for. Uh, for what, what's on your heart with regard to immigration. Yes. Okay. Dear God, 
I thank you for the privilege of being here with Dr. Danny to converse and think about your world, your people, this country, those who are coming to join it um, and work and serve within it. I pray that we would see your world, see our nation, see migrants as you see us, all of us, that we may have wisdom and grace to know how best to to love and to do and live justly that we might break down many of the walls that have come between us and our neighbors on these issues, on so many other issues. God, I pray that you would decrease the polarization in our country that makes it hard for us to get outside of our what we see as our people. May we see all these folks, God, as your children. And I pray for grace and wisdom for, for us as citizens, for those of us who are not citizens, that we might be faithful to what you've called us to do. And, uh, and I pray for those who are leading us in our congregations, that you might give them wisdom and direction how to best teach us and what are the basic biblical and moral guidelines that should help inform our thinking on these things. And I pray for our politicians who have so much in front of them to do very difficult tasks, so many difficult things that they have to weigh simultaneously as they seek to do justice to those who would come, those who are here, those who have been waiting. And I pray that it would be wisdom that would guide and direct their steps, not just scoring points or winning elections or pleasing their base. God, I pray your hand upon us. I thank you for the hope that you give us, and I pray that you would help us to be faithful in the steps that we take moving forward. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 So timely. So timely, Ruth. I appreciate you being here with us, engaging the courage, the perseverance, the sharp intellect to engage in this topic at this time. Thank you very much. Challenging words indeed, but engaging, engaging. From Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover, find out more at gordon.edu. My friend, God's timing is perfect. There's no better time than right now to share the love of Jesus with someone near you. And if you haven't done so, look, this might be that perfect moment for you to open your heart to Christ. Go to drdanny.live for next steps. Find resources to reach family and friends. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or major platforms. Matthew 25, 35, Jesus said, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. It's always a blessing to me to be with you. Thank you to Dr. Ruth Melconian Hoover, Gordon.edu. Until next time, along with my producer and creative director, Brian Torres, social media director, Luke Yamashiro, and guest coordinator, Jan Yi. I'm Danny Yamashiro. Remember, the Lord is with you as you share the love of Jesus with someone today. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast 
of The Good Life with Dr. Danny. We hope that today's program has been a blessing for you and that you may find hope in hearing how God's Word affects people from all walks of life. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is a listener-supported program, and we'd like for you to prayerfully consider becoming a sponsor or donor. To contact Dr. Danny and learn more about the ministry, visit drdanny.live. That's drdanny.live. Be sure to tune in weekdays at 6 p.m. to hear The Good Life with Dr. Danny. Until next time, may God richly bless you with The Good Life.